Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to Well That Aged Well. And this week, they're perhaps going to cut discuss one of the most controversial topics of late antiquity, and that is, of course, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And I'm here today with Brian Ward Perkins. And what, what, what do you think comes to mind? And I, I want to, before we begin with that, I want to begin with, of course, the, get the elephant of the room just right away, out right away. And I want to begin discussing, of course, the legendary series by Edward Gibbon, and at the same time, last this episode called "The Climb and Fall of the Roman Empire." So, what's still though is still kind of irrelevant today. People still read them; are still influential in books, but even not about the Roman Empire. So, what is it about the influence of Gibbon that persists to this day? Okay, well, I mean, Gibbon, for a start, Gibbon writes beautifully. Uh, he was amazingly knowledgeable. Uh, he knew his text, uh, and it's a book that is thoroughly readable, which cannot be said about many modern historians' books, uh, which tend to be rather dull. Uh, Gibbon aimed his book at a scholarly but also a general audience, and that's why it was so successful, and also because it was just so ambitious. Um, His ideas are, are, as it were, discredited today, uh, or one could say out of fashion. Uh, I mean, he attributed the rise of Christianity as a key factor uh, in the decline of the Roman Empire. That isn't fashionable today, and I think rightly so, because the East Roman Empire, which persisted, became more and more Christian and actually did extremely well. So I don't think, you know, Christianity... But Gibbon, I mean, he had a decent argument. Uh, I mean, he argued that the church was overprivileged, it was undertaxed that lots of good people who should have been doing something more useful uh, went into it uh, and that it you know, didn't pay its way in terms of providing troops and taxation. It's not a very strong argument, mainly because actually the church in the 4th, 5th century, which is the key century, wasn't hugely well endowed. Uh, the great endowment of the church really sort of happens slowly through the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. And it's really only by the 8th, 9th century that the church owns massive quantities of land. So I think, I mean, given, uh, I think one can discount his theory, though, like all theories, it will probably come back uh, in some form uh, in the future because, I mean, people go on debating what happened at the end of the Roman Empire. There is no firm, clear, indisputable answer. So it'll probably come back in some manifestation. 
And of course, we're given in the famous chapter 15, we are going to start after, of course, Constantine's conversion. And what that's where I want to be. That is just the, the, how the, the, the empire changed under Constantine. And of course, we are going to mainly focus on the western side of the empire this episode. But, but as I said, the eastern empire will last for thousands of years. But of course, well, how, what did it mean for the western half when Constantine moved his back? The capital city to Constantinople, and you have, you know, away from Rome, and of course the Christianization of Europe. Okay. Um, well, Constantine didn't actually move everything over to Constantinople. He established a second important city in the east, Constantinople, uh, which he named after himself, uh, and he gave it exceptional status. He established a senate there. Uh, I mean, the previously, the only Senate was in Rome, of course. But uh, he ruled the empire as a single structure, just using two capitals together. And in the fourth century, sometimes the empire was united, sometimes it was divided in two for functional reasons. I don't think one can attribute the decline of the West to the fact that everything moved east. I mean, it's true that in the 5th century, when the West was in trouble, uh, the Eastern emperors sometimes intervened, but sometimes didn't because they had more pressing problems on their hands. Uh, But everybody imagined the empire to be a single force and not a divided thing. So I don't think the establishment of Constantinople was absolutely crucial. And as I've said before, the conversion to Christianity... I don't think made any difference in terms of the power structure uh, and the resources that were available to the emperors. How quickly did paganism fall from the Roman Empire? Because we discussed this in previous episodes as well, that people were still pagans and a lot of the pagan, I think that was was to make easy conversion, right? That a lot of pagan teams were converted into Christian traditions, right? and it was kind of a smoother... Yes, into, yes the, no, the, 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 the process of conversion was a classic top-down but unenforced conversion. What happened is the emperor became Christian, which was a remarkable fact because, I mean, there was no reason why an emperor should become Christian. And crucially, Constantine established a dynasty which was also Christian. So uh, the people, the, the person at the very top of the empire was a Christian. This meant that he favoured uh, people who were Christian and people at the top uh, echelons of the empire drifted into Christianity because it was advantageous to them. And then people lower down similarly drifted into Christianity because it because their superiors had become Christian. It was a very gradual process. There was no massive effort to Christianize people. It's not the case that they sent you know, missionaries out in the fourth century. It's a, it's, a, it's a drift, a very similar, actually, to the later conversion of large parts of the Eastern Empire to Islam. Uh, it's not the case that the Muslims sent out missionaries in order to convert the local people. People just drifted into 
uh, Islam. And similarly, in the fourth century, they drifted into Christianity. And there was no, I mean, only at the very end of the fourth century is there any legislation against uh, pagan practices. I mean, in, in fact, arguably, it's the most effective way of achieving a conversion. You don't, If you try and force people to become something, uh, they become martyrs. I mean, which is what happened, you know, when, when the pagans tried to make the Christians comply. I mean, if anything, it made them more bloody-minded. So it was actually quite an effective way. I mean, they weren't thinking about it, but it just... But the empire empire just moved slowly into a new religion. Well, we had a battle because a little bit later, of course, the Battle of Adrianople in three sixty four to three seventy eight, and where the Visigoths come in. Is this a significant part of the the contribution to the decline of Paul? The Battle of oh, Adrianople. If we're talking about if we're talking about the fall of the Roman Empire, um, and one of the things that's very important to note is that the fourth century empire up until the Battle of Adrianople in 378, was very powerful. It had periodic problems, but it was a united, strong empire which kept the, the people that they, they called the barbarians at bay. And in fact, the 4th century empire had pulled together a chaotic situation in the 3rd century. In the 3rd century, almost the whole of the West and East had been overrun by people from outside. And it was only the heroic efforts of people like Diocletian that pulled the empire together again. So, in fact, in the earlier fourth century, uh, one was witnessing the resurgence of a powerful uh, military empire. But, I mean, people obviously will go on discussing whether things had changed for the worst in some way, whether there was some degree of economic decline. And economic decline would affect an empire like the Romans because, like us, they've had a professional soldiery. Uh, and so, as it were, the amount of tax you raised would depend would, would then uh, determine how many soldiers you had, exactly as in the present day. But there's no obvious sign of economic decline. Christianity we've already dealt with as not obviously leading to a weakening. Um, personally, I think it's largely bad luck uh, because the Romans and the people that we call the Germanic barbarians, the people who are east of the Rhine and north of the Danube, were always quite fine balanced the balance of power. The Romans, for instance, had attempted under Augustus to advance the frontier across the Rhine towards the Elbe, but Varus, uh, the commander, lost three legions, uh, and, and that was the end of... Varus, to... give me back my legions. That's right, that's what Augustus is supposed to have said on his, on his deathbed. Varus, give me back my legions. So uh, the Germanic people could win, uh, and in fact, in the third century, they very nearly overturned the empire. So I don't think there's a particularly... I mean, the Romans had much better organisation. They had much better provisioning. They had fortresses. They had uh, military armament factories. They were better, but not overwhelmingly so. I mean, if one thinks of you know the 19th century and Europeans 
facing you know foes in africa it's nothing like that they're much more finely balanced and what happens at the end of the fourth century is the germanic world is upset by the arrival of a new people the nomadic people the huns who come in from the east from way east in asia and actually drive the visigoths certainly and probably many of the later people at the beginning of the 5th century, though it's hard to prove that, uh, westwards uh, into the empire. And in doing so, they also force those people into a degree of unity, which they didn't normally have, because these people are on the move. They're in serious trouble. They, as it were, kind of unify. And, and that's, I think it's just bad luck. I mean, you know, the, the Roman Empire was going to fall sometime. Um, I mean, the crucially, the Eastern Empire was very, very lucky because the Germanic people didn't have uh, sea power, or at least not until the 5th the century when the Vandals acquired some sea power in Carthage. And crucially, they were unable to cross the Bosphorus so most of the Eastern Empire was not affected in any way by the Germanic people coming in across the Danube and across the Rhine. And that meant that the Eastern Empire could always draw on its taxation resources and its military resources and, in fact, eventually repel the, the, the barbarians, whereas the Western Empire didn't have that geographical advantage, uh, except for the advantage of the, the um, Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, but those are then crossed in the early 5th century. I mean, I I think it was, I mean, my explanation is that essentially the Germanic people and the Romans are quite finely balanced, and that balance just happens to tip slightly in favour of the Germanic people. I, I think it's, as, for me, it's as simple as that. I want to talk about, because as you know, you mentioned that there wasn't a huge difference for the West as well in terms of time. Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople, but I want to talk a little bit about the old capital of Rome because it would slightly eventually become kind of irrelevant to the Roman Empire. It's my understanding that it wasn't really that important anymore. So, what let's talk a little bit about Rome and how Rome would be after the Constantine moved the capital. Okay, yes, um, Rome, well, for a start, everybody accepted the symbolic primacy of Rome as the city of the empire. And indeed, everybody called themselves Romans. Uh, the people who eventually ruled from Constantinople, the people that we call the Byzantines, Byzantine is just a term of a modern term of convenience. It was hardly used at the time. Uh, Byzantine derives from the old name of Constantinople, which before Constantine refounded it as Constantinopolis, was called Byzantion. So we call the people in the east the Byzantines, but they called themselves the Romans. Right and they, if I may, didn't Constantine at first begin with Nueva Roma, that new Rome, that yes. was its real name for the capital as well? Uh, yes, no. I mean, the real name was Constantinopolis, mm. but it was often referred to as a new Rome. The, mm. the problem is Latin doesn't have a definite or indefinite article. So whether it's the new Rome or a new Rome is mm. ambiguous in Latin. Um, so, uh, but I mean, Rome was 
in terms of its prestige, I mean, Rome never lost that prestige. Mm. But, and, but in the fourth century, already in the fourth century, long before um, the Battle of Adrianople and the barbarian problems, it wasn't an, uh, it was seldom used as an imperial residence. Emperors visited it. But the reason for that's quite straightforward. Uh, emperors wanted to be up near the frontiers because they wanted to be with their army, because the effective political force in the 4th century wasn't the Senate in Rome, which was essentially rather symbolic, um, if highly prestigious body. Uh, the effective political force was the soldiery, which had been the effective political force in the 3rd century and had overturned many emperors. And it was crucial for emperors to be you know, near their soldiery. So they spent their time in places like Trier, or they might winter in Milan, or Sirmium up on the Danube, or Antioch uh, on the eastern frontier uh, in Syria. Um, Rome, symbolic, but not an effective centre of power. That didn't mean it was unimportant and it didn't mean that emperors uh, ignored it totally i mean they continued to put up impressive buildings there increasingly um, churches and they visited it on occasion you know for great sort of symbolic set pieces of, uh, of you know their, their power now of course imagine that it kind of slightly become not as important but still it must have been quite a shock factor when the visitors in the south of Rome in 401, though. So that seemed to be kind of a big factor of, as well to contribute to the decline of the Roman oh, Empire, oh, the yes. south of Rome in 401. Oh, uh, symbolically, in 410. Yeah. In symb uh, symbolically, the, 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 Goths, the Gothic sack of Rome was a tremendous shock. Uh, I mean, in fact, Jerome the church father, Jerome, who was in Palestine at the time, uh, I mean, he wrote thinking that that would be the end of Roman power, uh, which one can understand, you know, if Rome falls, uh, you know, doesn't the entire empire crumble. The reality, of course, was that Rome wasn't the key political centre uh, and actually, um, you know, the empire did not completely collapse with the fall of Rome, but symbolically it was a hugely serious moment. I mean, Rome hadn't been sacked since the Gauls sacked it in the fourth century BC. So, you know, this was a this was a big moment. And um, of course, it's not a let's talk about the move of the it's not about the foreign two, I believe, the Emperor Honorius move the court from Milan again and then onto Ravenna is not right. So that again Rome get a new capital as well. Um yes. Uh in four oh two, I mean the the normal as I was saying earlier, emperors in the fourth century spent much of their time they spent their time nearer the frontiers. Uh oh. and often Trier, which is just behind the Rhine uh, in modern Germany, and Sirmium, which is on the Danube. But they also spent quite a lot of time, and often they wintered in Milan, in Milan because Milan actually had access both to the Rhine frontier and to the Danube frontier, so you could move from Milan 
in either direction. In 401, the Goths enter Italy. This is after their success at Adrianople in 378. And Milan suddenly seems like a rather dangerous place. So what the emperors do is they move to Ravenna. Uh, the reason they move to Ravenna is that Ravenna was basically surrounded by swamps and had tremendous natural defences. And also Ravenna was, well, not quite on the coast, but very, very near the coast. So it could easily be provisioned uh, from outside and had very good links, for instance, to the Eastern em Empire. So, yes, um, I mean, Ravenna is a, a new imperial residence in the 5th century. Would it remain so until the end in 476, or would it just keep on moving capital? No, 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 Ravenna is, Ravenna is the... The normal residence place of the em emperors until 476, the deposition of the last emperor. And then, actually, crucially, uh, it is the capital of Ostrogothic Italy uh, under Theodoric. And in fact, one of its great moments uh, is actually early 6th century after the fall of the empire under the new Ostrogothic kings of Italy. And then when Justinian reconquers Italy, the uh, imperial administration uh, of Italy is then based in Ravenna. So Ravenna goes on being important actually right the way into the 8th century when it's finally um, captured by the Lombards uh, and, and declines. I mean, one of the reasons why if you go to Ravenna, and if you've not been to Ravenna, do go to Ravenna, uh, because it's fantastic because it has all these buildings built in the 5th, 6th, 7th century, and they're not much touched. And the reason they're not much touched is because actually, after the 8th century, Ravenna became a very unimportant place. So all these buildings which had been put up were not then transformed uh, in later centuries. So if you want to see a late Roman city, uh, and particularly late Roman uh, church art and architecture, I mean, Ravenna is the place to go. Uh, I mean, much better than anywhere in the East, because in the East, in the 8th century, you have iconoclasm when they destroy all the images. Ooh. So, I mean, Ravenna has by far the richest um, collection of, of mosaics of any city. Ooh. So now, of course, I want to turn our noses towards North Africa, of course. Another thing that happened there in 429 is, of course, the Vandal invasion and the loss of Africa is beginning so let's talk about the loss and did, did it was it that important at a time for Rome the loss of Africa was just a kind of thorn in the side at this point that it was not that yes, important I mean, loss. The, 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 the end of the Western Roman Empire is quite unlike any kind of modern invasion I mean modern invasions you know the tanks advance you conquer territory, everything behind you is controlled by you, everything in front of you isn't controlled by you. I mean, the reality of the 5th century is that you've got imperial armies, you've sometimes got rival emperors fighting civil wars uh, amongst the emperors. You've got a series of different peoples, people like the Goths, the Vandals, uh, the Huns, all of whom are fight each other just as much and as And by they the way, fight. if I if I may, we're not talking about the Goths that hang out in camp and 
there's a different kind of gods. Yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yes. No, there, <laughs> there, there are, yeah, there are, anyway, there are multiple peoples. They are far from united, uh, and they fight each other just as much as they fight the Romans. And the Romans fight each other. As I say, there are, you know, the rival emperors. So it's a process of very gradual disintegration of Roman power and of more and more power slipping into the hands of Germanic peoples until eventually you get final deposition of Romulus Augustulus in 476 and the effective end of all Roman rule. Although actually little bits of the empire uh, remain unconquered. I mean, in particular, West Britain, Wales, was never conquered by the the Germanic people, at least not till the 13th century when Edward I of England conquers it. And places like Brittany uh, in Gaul, again, not really touched. So it's a it's an, a very complicated process of sort of civil war disintegration and loss of Roman power. The loss of Africa was very important because Africa, until the Vandals conquer it in the 430s, was untouched by Germanic invasion because of the Straits of Gibraltar. And so it was the one area of the Western Empire that was really unaffected. Mm. And crucially, that meant that it could provide a tax base and therefore support the military machine of the remaining Roman of Roman power. Mm. Were Egypt still the breadbasket of the Rome or was it still Yes, but the... Egypt was in the Eastern Empire. Mm. So it wasn't it wasn't supplying uh, tax and 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 revenue to to the west. No, that the breadbasket of the of the Western Roman Empire was Africa through Carthage, Ooh. which is near modern Tunis. Ooh. You mentioned Britain, and I want to talk about the loss of Britain as well, of course, because eventually they followed the power. And and, and Mark Morris write write about this in and the consequences. We're going to talk about the consequences as well in a little in the short shortly, but. The, the loss of, when the Romans lost Britain, according to Mark Morris, it was no circulation of coins and there was total disarray in Britain because of what, when the future not pay troops, it's coins that circulated into the British Isles. There was total chaos and it kind of what we would call, and of course the term is disputed now, but it was kind of a dark age in a sense after the loss of the Roman Empire, that the, the British colony to the Roman Empire and when they lost it. Yes, no, I mean that's this is this is really where people disagree more even than over why the empire uh fell. Uh what was the consequences of it? Uh and I've written a book called The Fall of Rome and the End of Civilization. I am very careful to define civilization as society maintaining a complex economy uh, and all the things that go with a complex economy like city life, literacy, coinage. Because I think that actually what happens with the end of the Roman Empire is a really dramatic decline uh, in living standards right the way across society from peasants um, up to kings uh, in the West. I mean, Britain is the most extreme case in Britain, in the 5th century, as you mentioned, coinage disappears, cities disappear. Mm. 
there are no cities uh, in the late 5th century uh, in Britain. And of course, again, if I may, the roads, of course, are not maintained properly. Ah, no, roads actually have slightly more durability because they're very solid uh, and you, in a sense, can't destroy them. So actually, one of the few things in Roman Britain that persists into the modern era I mean, quite a few of the roads of modern Britain mm. actually follow the Roman roads, are actually the Roman roads. Mm, really? No, absolutely. But what also goes, for instance, is in, in Roman Britain, there were complex industries. We know most about it from pottery. Um, there were industries that made wheel-turned pots and distributed them quite widely. And we know about that because pottery survives extremely well archaeologically. It's almost impossible to destroy and you can date pots because they change, the types of pot change through time. And you can also provenance pots. You can know where they're made because, again, particular types can be identified as made in particular places. And if there's any doubt about that, you can actually do a petrological analysis of it, look at the clay and see what the inclusions are in the clay in the pot, which will then place it geographically as where it was made. So pottery, we know an enormous amount... And late Roman Britain, third, fourth century Britain, had a number of sizable pottery industries making very ordinary things which were available way down society. I mean, not just for the elite. All of that just goes in the fifth century. There is, in fact, it's an extraordinary fact, but indisputable. There's no wheel-turned pottery made in Britain uh, by the middle of the 5th century. The use of the potter's wheel, which is a really basic technology, disappears from Britain. So you've got all the complex industries go, coinage goes, towns go, and you've also got a huge change in society because what was a single state breaks down into small kingdoms uh, and increasingly, in fact, small kingdoms ruled from hilltop fortresses. What happens is people reoccupy the old Iron Age fortresses. You, in a sense, revert to a pre-Roman sort of politics. And very, very importantly, the aristocracy, which in the Roman period was demilitarized, Roman aristocrats did not fight unless they chose to. Um, in the 5th, 6th century in places like Britain, Ooh. aristocrats all become militarised. I mean, the sort of aristocracies we're used to in the Middle Ages. Now, Britain is a very extreme case, but the same sort of thing happens to lesser extreme right the way over the West. I mean, there are far, there are fewer towns by 600 in the West. There is far less coinage. There's far less complex industry. So there is a general... Well, if you want to say simplification of the economy and society, you can, uh, but I think you can call it a decline of the economy and a consequent change in society. I mean, one of the things that unquestionably happens in the 5th, 6th century all over the West is the aristocracy has to become militarised, which is a huge change. Uh, um, and essentially you move to the sort of situation where then used oh. to right the way through the Middle Ages up until 
the 16th century. I mean, it's only really in the 16th century that, you know, aristocrats are not expected to be, and even then they are to some extent, you know, still expected to be military thugs. Mm. And you mentioned, you had mentioned that, of course, Britain was a very extreme kid, but when the Vandals invaded North Africa, which we spoke a little bit earlier about, was the kind of similar theme going on there in North Africa after the loss of Roman Britain, or was it different? uh, I think that there's certainly it's on the peripheries of the uh, on the peripheries of the empire that the biggest changes happen. Really, actually, I mean, arguably, in the fifth century, in places like Italy and Africa, the Germanic invaders, what they want to do is they want to have a a good time. Uh, and they don't really disrupt what's going on. But what happens is through the 5th, 6th century, there's a slow decline of the economy. Uh, and also, I think the militarization of the aristocracy is a much, much slower process. It's not, it's not, no, 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 it's, it is, no, Britain is a very, very extreme case. Is it simply because it's an island that it's kind of isolated from the rest of Europe? Is that why it's so? Uh, such it's a, good, it's a very good question. Case? Quite why is impossible, and I don't know. Is a simple answer, um, and I don't think anybody knows. I think it might be that the disruption in Britain is particularly extreme because what happens in Britain is uh, a the 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 Britons break down into little individual kingdoms, really quite small individual kings. And you've also got people from the north, the people who are called the Picts, coming in from what's now Scotland over Hadrian's Wall. You've got people coming over from Ireland, uh, attacking the west of Britain. Uh, And, for instance, it's them who take prisoner, a man called Patrick, in the 5th century, take him over to Ireland, and Patrick is a Christian and, in fact, begins the conversion of Ireland. So that's, you know, a very important moment. Uh, And then also, of course, you've got people coming from modern Denmark and North Germany and even from Scandinavia, who we call the Anglo-Saxons. So there is an awful lot of disruption uh, in Britain. I think it's probably exceptionally disrupted. How quickly after the fall of Rome in Britain does the Anglo-Saxon arrive? Is it two centuries? Is it almost immediately after the, the Romans leave? Uh, much discussed, uh, because uh, our textual evidence is very, 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 very thin. Uh, I mean, basically, between 410, when the Emperor Honorius issues a law which affects Britain, and 597 when a missionary from Rome called Augustine arrives, we don't actually have any known dates uh, in the history of Britain. It, it Britain sort of slips into being sort of semi-prehistoric. So we're dependent almost entirely on archaeology and the archaeological evidence. You can't really put very, very precise dates on pieces of pot. You can date them to, I don't know, 30, 40 years, but, and say, you know, trying to write military history from archaeology is pretty much uh, impossible. And people have 
I mean, no, they they dispute it. Um, I mean, there was a an idea which is probably true that some of the Anglo-Saxons were already in Britain because they were there as mercenaries fighting in the Roman army. So in a sense, when, you know, when in the fifth century things start to go terribly wrong, there are already people there, Germanic people from the continent. Um, but they're certainly arriving in the early fifth century. And certainly the Irish are invading in the fifth century. And the Picts are unquestionably, I mean, in fact, they there's a massive Pictish invasion in the fourth century, which is driven back. Ooh. It's not, not, not any more fact that I want to bring up because, as you know, of course, Rome was a very much slave state in yes. its own right. And they, they were run by, not to, maybe not run by slaves, but slaves were a huge factor under the retribution. So, with a lot of territory, and of course, we mentioned Christianity, but as Christianity later, I almost uh, in the early, early Middle Ages, the person would translate into serfdom. But how did it? Did it begin to lose slavery and the the, uh, the kidnapping of slaves, turning into slaves when loss of territory began to be smaller and smaller as we see the Romans lose power? Is how is the slave trade and slave slavery a factor as well that when the loss of territories? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, because it, it is possible to argue. That the Germanic invasions, you know, lead to a more free society. Uh, it may be economically depressed, uh, but lots of you know free Germanic peasants who are you know all um, very happy in their freedom, even though they may be economically rather low down the scale. The problem is, there's plenty of evidence for slavery in Germanic societies as well. I mean, people get captured and sold. Uh, they get sold. I mean, and in fact, slavery continues in the you know post-Roman world. Uh, I mean, famously, Gregory the Great, Pope in Rome at the end of the sixth century, supposedly uh, one of the way one of the things that makes him want to convert uh, the Angles, the English, is that he meets some Angle slaves. Uh, in the slave market in Rome, and these people have these have been captured by people in by Anglos, other Anglo-Saxons, and sold abroad. He meets some of these uh, in the slave market, and they're all they're charming, nice blonde uh, Anglo-Saxons. And he asks, "Who are these people?" And the answer is, "They are Angles, Angli." And and Gregory looks at them and says, "Not Angles, but angels." And he decides that he's got to convert th these people. So slavery doesn't disappear with the end of the Roman Empire. Now, I mean, there are plenty of slaves in Germanic lands as well as in Roman lands. It's impossible to quantify. And actually, the great period of slavery in the Roman Empire was probably earlier than the late Roman Empire. What had probably happened by the late Roman Empire is that peasants, uh, for instance, huge slave estates operated just by slaves had probably changed into estates where you have people closer to what we would call serfs. Uh, and I think, I mean, the definition of a serf is that you 
can't actually sell a serf. You could in Russia in the 19th century, but I don't, you couldn't normally in the in the Middle Ages actually sell their bodies to somebody else, which you can with a slave. But it's kind of a grey area in slavery. In like yes, they're tied. They're tied to the land, forced to stay on the land, with very bad deal in terms of you know what they could do. And for instance, they would be forced to, if they wanted to 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 turn their grain into corn, they'd be forced to use the Lord's mill and the Lord would give them a really bad deal on it. So to define them as half free is is a useful definition. But we don't don't really have terribly good evidence from the um, immediately post-Roman period, you know, about things, things like that. It's really only later that we get detail about about that kind of thing. Mm. Of course, another some people seem to contribute land as a factor as well to the fall of Roman Empire. So, is the truth that land is a contributing factor? Sorry, did you say lead? Lead, lead, yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, uh, lead poisoning, which is using lead in water supply, um, is thought to be a bad thing. Uh, it's unfashionable, this. Uh, I think mainly because I don't think it's been proved. And I suspect that these days you could probably prove it from skeletal evidence. I don't know. It's only gone out as an idea. And I think the main problem with the lead poisoning theory through uh, is that what tends to happen with lead pipes is that they fur up inside enough to actually mean that the water is not really in contact with the lead it's in contact with what what the sort of furring up inside the the pipe is like so i I don't think it is it's certainly not a it's not a fashionable view i mean of course people will go on discussing all kinds of things i mean i mean climate change is you know currently quite a big view Um, um but that doesn't really work because the problem about climate change is it would probably benefit some areas and disadvantage other areas so it's un- a, a, a sort of climate change that affected the whole of the western roman empire at once it is implausible mm. so of course another fellow that i want to discuss of course mentioned the hans earlier and the hand that you mentioned but that arguably one of the most famous hands of course is attila the hand so let's yes. discuss his Contributing factor to the decline of as well. Yes, well, the Huns, the the Huns certainly are responsible for disrupting the Germanic world north of the Danube at the end of the fourth century. We know this for certain uh, because the Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus tells us explicitly that what drove the Goths over the Danube was the fact that the Huns were coming from the east and were conquering them. So that is certainly a factor. It is quite likely that they were also responsible for disrupting the Germanic world a bit later 
in the early 5th century further west when in 407 uh, a, a, a constellation of people including the vandals cross the Rhine they may well have been driven by Hunnic pressure that we just don't know because the texts don't exist to tell us that because one of the problems is that the minute you cross the Rhine or cross the Danube going east over the Rhine or north over the Danube, you are entering prehistoric societies. They're not writing things down. They don't have histories. So in a sense, one is sort of guessing what's going on. It's quite likely, though, that the Huns are a major reason for the disruption of the Germanic world, which leads to the Germanic people to cross the Rhine. But uh, certainly the Danube, in the case of the Goths, Possibly, and indeed, I, I would say probably, but we can't prove it. Uh, the Rhine, uh, the end at the beginning of the fifth century. Ironically, in the first half of the fifth century, the Huns are arguably something of a unifying force because they control almost everything east of the Rhine and north of the Danube. And as long as the Roman emperors paid them huge sums of money, uh, they kept relatively quiet. Uh, and in fact, ironically... It was kind of a mafia style. And says, you yes. pay us, we, we protect you. Yes, I mean, it was like... I mean, it was, I suppose it's a little bit like, the, you know, the Cold War when you had, you know, the Soviet bloc and the Western world. And everybody sort of knew where everybody stood... And actually, that was reasonably, uh, I mean, arguably, you know, with the with the disintegration, you know, of the Soviet bloc, things get more complicated. And it's only when the, the Hunnic Empire collapses uh, after the death of uh, Attila in the 450s and 460s. And in fact, after that, arguably, things get more chaotic. I mean, ironically, the Huns probably actually held things together. Uh, because they were then paid off, as you say, in sort of mafia-style protection money paid by the Roman emperor. Hmm. And I want to talk about that again, bring back Christianization, because, of course, man, it seemed to me that, of course, being the Attila, the Hun, the Germanic people were started to emigrate into the Roman Empire because of pressure of Hunnic, as we briefly discussed, I think. But they were actually being Christianized as well, the Germanic tribes, and I, be I believe that came in and eventually would sack Rome in 476. I believe most of them were starting to be Christianized as well in the, the Germanic tribes. Yes, no, the, the Germanic tribes, um, with a few exceptions, uh, uh, the Anglo-Saxons are the obvious one. The Anglo-Saxons do not convert when they settle inside the empire. They're only converted when Rome sends missionaries to them at the very end of the 6th century. But for the most part, the Germanic people, when they enter the empire, or even before they enter the empire, have converted to Christianity. And it is definitely a factor that's important in terms of what happens, yeah. that the Germanic people enter the empire wanting to enjoy life within the empire. They don't come with any ideology of change or any ideology of wanting to impose Germanicness uh, on the people they have settled amongst. If anything, uh, they come with an ideology of wanting to 
benefit from what they found within the empire, which was more sophisticated, more complex uh, than what they were used to before. So, in fact, they when they come in as conquerors, but they also come in as sort of willing immigrants, and they do convert. And in time, most of them adopt the local language so that, uh, you know, French... Uh, Italian, Spanish, uh, Portuguese are all forms of late Latin. Now, they're not, as it were, the language of the, the people who came in and conquered. They're the language mm. of the indigenous people. And because, of course, as well. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I mean, it, Go on. There, there were more of, I mean, the only place, in fact, where the language, sorry, the only place, substantial place where the language changes is probably in the Balkans, where uh, eventually you get you know Slavic languages, although Romanians still speak a Romance language, uh, and Britain, where um, you know Anglo-Saxon is sorry Anglo-Saxon becomes English, uh, and we speak a Germanic language. Now, of course, as as with with the case in many days when we see immigrants coming in. Our country. There's a lot of people that didn't like it, and of course, back then as well, there were a lot of people that didn't like that the Germanic tribes came in. And it's my understanding that they eventually tried to blockade the immigration from the Germanic class. So, of course, not all favored immigration as well. Oh, oh yes, no, 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 no. I don't think it was very. It wasn't benign immigration, uh, and 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 the, the simple truth is. Um, uh, well, it's difficult to know what happens at a peasant level, but at an aristocratic level, uh, the people who come in take a large share of the wealth, not all of it. Yeah. Uh, they leave local people in power because it's convenient. They leave the church untouched, but they do take a very large share of the wealth quite how much is impossible to tell and also they take most of the power i mean all the germanic people probably even the anglo-saxons although we don't know this you know used local administrators used local aristocrats you know to to run things we know most about this in italy where you know the senatorial aristocracy, in fact, under the Goths, under the Ostrogoths, under Theodoric in the sixth century, um, they're, they're they're they kind of sort of ally. You know, the senatorial aristocracy and the Goths are in sort of in a, in a, in an alliance. But when it comes to it, it's the Gothic king Theodoric who actually exercises power. It's not a Roman anymore. Um, Theodoric, though, is proud to be heavily romanized he uses latin in his administration he uses roman administrators he lives in a marble palace uh, in ravenna he's a christian uh, for many christians he's the wrong type of christian but i mean he he's very very christian king so the, i mean the germanic people are actually attempting to fit in but the reality is that they've taken quite a lot and that is undeniable I want to jump back to Theodoric in just a brief second, but before we go to the final sack of Rome, I want to talk a little bit about the Roman army 
in for in the in the late fourth fifth century as well because of course as you know the Romans army were backbones basically of the Roman Empire. So, but what was the state of the Roman army at the mid fifth century and leading up to the final sack of Rome? Okay, well, it's a very good question. Um, the simple truth is we don't really know uh, what we what we can say with confidence is that by the mid-5th century, the amount of territory that is controlled directly by the Roman emperors has shrunk dramatically. Uh, they've lost Africa, they've lost Britain, they've lost much of Spain, they've lost much of Gaul. So therefore, their tax revenue is tiny, in comparison to what it was before. So their ability to pay for an army was hugely decreased. It's probably, uh, sorry, it's certainly also true that actually when they fought uh, with other, with barbarians, they allied with, you know, one lot of barbarians against another lot of barbarians. And so probably you know, barbarian armies and Roman armies are starting to look really very similar. But it's almost certainly a very slow process. And frankly, we just don't really know. I mean, you know, do they still have, I don't know, can they still form a testudo in, in the old Roman fashion? And, you know, uh, probably not. Uh, and And certainly, you know, the Germanic people, for instance, are learning to do things like siege warfare, so actually, by the fifth century, probably there's not a huge difference between a Roman army and a and a Germanic force. But we, frankly, we just don't know. And I'm fairly certain you didn't have twenty five years of service anymore. No, no. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but also, so- increasingly, increasingly, uh, the local provincials are militarizing themselves. They're moving more to a, 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 what one could call a, you know, a medieval type society in which aristocrats fight, and they fight because they have to, uh, and also in a sense the ethos of fighting, you know, starts to enter. We we know a little bit about this from Gaul, where we do know about, you know, aristocrats who raised forces, uh, and fought, uh, which was would be unthinkable in the. I don't know, second century, but you know they're, they're gradually becoming militarized. Is the idea of a standing army at this point start to fall? But the, there is no more standing yes, army. No, I mean, oh, oh, definitely, the idea of a professional army is is in slow decline, uh, and by the sixth century, you don't have professional armies. What you have is you have people who owe military service. Mercenaries. Um, yeah. Uh, no, not mercenaries. No, no, it's landowners, as you were, who, you know, are expected to fight. Very much like, like the Middle Ages. Uh, it, I mean, it is it's interesting that after this part, part of history, you won't have another standing army until the Ottomans come to power and create the Janissaries. And this takes almost five, six, seven centuries on the top of my head, that until you get another Stalin army in Europe and in the almost in the 
Is, oh no, absolutely! No, no standing armies, standing armies go out, go go out. I mean, it's not to say that there weren't professional soldiers. Uh, I mean, all states, I think, would maintain a small core, you know, of people, a bodyguards, you know, for instance, uh, which who would be, you know, absolutely crucial. But no, you're right. I mean, no, no standing professional armies definitely go out. They are not a feature of the Middle Ages. Now, before I go into that attack of Theodric, of course, and the final sack of bread. I want to talk a little bit about the role of the emperor that he would play in later half uh, until, of course, Romulus Augustus. And I want to talk a little bit about how much power they actually wielded in the Western, because I've spoken about the real power at this point, lay mostly in Constantinople. But what about the Western emperors? How much power did they really have over their domains? It's a very good question. Uh, and the reality is that increasingly power was held by their military commanders. Mm. And in fact, increasingly, those military commanders were themselves Germanic people. I mean, the most famous was Stilicho at the the beginning of the 5th century, and then later a man called Aetius. And they effectively start. So in fact, when one's talking about Romans fighting against Germanic barbarians, one is often talking about people who are Germanic, uh, who are serving a Roman emperor, but actually largely controlling that emperor, fighting other Germanic people. I mean, the 5th century so there was, was wonderful. So they were basically a puppet, puppet throw at this point. The Western emperor was basically a puppet of uh, the Germanic Yes, it goes, it, it goes up and down a bit, but yes, increasingly, yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't really matter. So when in four seven six, they uh, Odoacer, the Germanic, the effective Germanic ruler, decides to ex uh, to depose uh, Romulus Augustulus, nothing really changes. It's it's all. I want changed. to talk a little. I want to talk a little bit about him because it's kind of a myth that he actually was named. Romulus Augustus, is that later to contribute to the fact that, oh, the last Roman emperor was called Romulus Augustus in kind of a poetic way that both, both the founder of Rome was Romulus and the first Roman emperor was Augustus. So was it kind of a myth that he was actually named Romulus Augustus to put them I'm afraid I don't, I don't think I actually know. Uh, and I'm sure the Augustulus would not be his own name. Augustus doesn't mean little. Augustus. I'm sure that would be a nickname imposed on him because of his powerlessness, but I'm afraid I don't actually know. Because it's kind of sound like it should be more of a myth in the making that the last Yes, yes, no, no, it, sound, it, does, it, it does sound much too good to be true, but I, I cannot, I'm afraid, debunk that for you because I really just don't know. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, of course, we mentioned him earlier, but let's talk about the final sack of Rome and Theodoric's in- entry into Rome. And as we spoke about, he was, was really keen on being a Roman himself. And of course, you know, let's, so let's talk about the final sack of Rome. No, so, no, so I'm going to correct you. There is no yeah. sack of Rome. There are two sacks of Rome. One of them is 410, which is the Goths, which mm. is this terrible shock. And the other one is 455, which is the Vandals. The Vandals mm. come from Africa by sea and they sack Rome. And arguably the, the Vandal sack is worse than the Gothic sack. The end of the, the uh, in 476, 
really nothing happens. Uh, Romulus Augustulus is deposed, and that's it. There is no, there is no event. <laughs> it's just that's all that happens. So, when there were, but the, it's my understanding as well that when, like you said, a lot happened, but they, they didn't stop to introduce themselves as the Roman. And oh, we're Italian now, we speak Italian, and uh, we make you know, they didn't think of themselves as immediately, oh, we're not Roman anymore, they, uh, and we're from now on, we are Italians. Of course, that wouldn't be seen until the 19th century. Oh, sorry, that's oh, the, sorry, no, but they crew- still. Yeah, no, no, sorry. Um, Odoacer and his successor Theodoric are proudly Romanizing. One of the problems, though, is what we have is that we have the propaganda presentation of themselves as very, very Roman, which is produced for a Roman audience so that the Roman audience thinks that really nothing has changed. Whether, for instance, Theodoric in 6th century Ravenna, who certainly lived in a marble palace in a completely Roman style, whether he actually spoke Latin, all his administration is in Latin, uh, whether he spoke Gothic or whether his councillors had to speak Gothic, we just don't know. I mean, probably the reality is that they're presenting themselves as even more Roman than they were. But you're quite right, they're trying to fit in. Um, And in fact, early 6th century Ravenna is a sort of golden age of of Ravenna in terms of its, you know, mosaics, its churches, its sort of Roman style. Did the Eastern Roman emperors care at all about what happened over there in 476? It just, that doesn't matter. No, the truth is they did, and periodically they sent... Uh, there's an there's an attempt to recapture Carthage, for instance, in the in the fifth century, with a ma- major force coming f- from the east, uh, and then very importantly, in the sixth century, in the five thirties and five forties, Justinian reconquers Africa Ooh. very successfully, and much no, 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 just for like five seconds. Sorry, just for like five second time. Uh no, no. Africa remains remains in East Roman hands until the Arabs conquer it, and that's only in the late seventh century. Mm. No, no, it's quite a long time. Mm. He also conquers bits of Spain, which is held for about a hundred years, and crucially, he conquers Italy, uh, and large parts of Italy remain in Byzantine hands. And well, in the north. Ravenna is finally captured by Lombards in the mid-8th century. But in the south, Sicily is held by the East Roman Empire until the Arabs conquer it in the 9th century. And what is now Puglia, um, the the, the sort of heel of Italy, uh, is in Byzantine hands until the 11th century when it's conquered by the Normans. So there is actually... And I do believe that some historians is currently deb- that on Justinian is currently debating what if it actually was a good idea, but if it did more harm than good, the with Belisarius conquering of Italy and that part of yeah. the empire, because it seemed to be kind of mixed, mixed thoughts there. If it was more harmful than actually good, 
Yes, I, I, that, that is much debated. I think one could probably reasonably say that's for another of your podcasts. Mm, you, you, could have a, you could perfectly well have a podcast on Justinian. Mm -hmm. Was he a good or bad thing for the East Roman Empire? Yeah. I mean, he did get Hagia Sophia, so that's kind of... Uh... Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Just Sorry, Justinian is yeah. certainly a, a very powerful, influential yeah. person. Whether it's good or bad, I think mm. we're... Uh, it's not. I'm not really an expert, and I think you need a different podcast yeah. on that. Of course, but let's go back to the West because I want to talk a little bit about the Latin language as well. How long does it stay in a verbal form until it dies out, and how how is the death of the Latin language in the West? Because of course, in the East, as we talked about, Justinian would be the last emperor to speak Latin, but that Greek was the main language in the East. But what how how did the death of Latin occur? Oh, sorry, Latin never dies. Latin just slowly changes into Italian, mm. Spanish and French. I mean, those are all basically just late Latin. Um, it's the... I mean, the Latin as we know from Roman, like how does it, how well, quickly does it... It's very, no. it's very, very difficult to tell. But I mean, the problem is, as you will know from English, the way we spell things in English and the way we pronounce them does not have a very close relationship to each other. So uh, what happens is that, you know, people continued to write when they were talking about a dog, they would write canis, Latin dog. But probably uh, in, in what is now France, in Gaul, slowly the pronunciation would change to something closer to chien. I mean, mm. chien, C-H-I-E-N, is definitely, mm. you know, it's the same word as canis, but it's now, you know, spelt different and pronounced different. But probably it gradually was pronounced different. Whereas in, in Italy, they were continuing to say something closer to cane. Um mm. In Spain, of course, they, they do something totally different and they go over to Peroz, which has no relationship at all. But it's probably a very, 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 very slow change. And we can't really document it because the written language remains, you know, formal Latin. I mean, you can, you can document it up to a point because, for example, uh, a lot of writers really, I mean, they, in Latin, because Latin is an inflected language where you can tell whether somebody is the is the subject or the accusative. So you could put king kills bishop, and by the end, by the way you change the ending of the word, it could be the bishop who kills the king, or the king who kills the bishop, depending on the ending of the word, not the word order. Increasingly, uh, people write with things in the word order that we're used to. So it would be the king kills the bishop, would always be king kills bishop, not yeah. bishop killed king, which, so we, 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 you need an inflected line. So you can sort of tell that they're using the ends. I mean, they're not inflecting so much, which is a move towards modern languages. So, I mean, there are ways of sort of seeing, but but Latin doesn't die. It, it, it just, just changes. Uh, and of course, as a language of of communication 
and education and administration. I mean, it's right up to the 17th century. I mean, the 17th century, you know, I mean, people like Newton can communicate with people on the continent in Latin. No problem at all. Um, and actually, uh, you know, the 18th century argument is disastrous because people stop having a common language of communication. I mean, nowadays, you know, English is is gradually becoming one again. But um, in, for, for educated people, and, and you could be, you know, you, you went as a, in the 13th century, you went from England to, I don't know, Padua to study. No problem at all, because everyone's, it's all done in Latin. And that's done in proper Latin. And that, that's, you know, they're, they're, they're communicating in proper Latin. So, no, Latin has, it doesn't, it continues as the language of education, uh, administration, uh, and at a lower level, it just slowly changes into modern languages. Now, of course, I want now you want to discuss some. It does just some of this already, like with Latin language, but and now you want to discuss of the consequences of the fall of the Western Roman Empire so in the, and the aftermath. Of after the supposed fall in 476, that is not happened. But let's discuss anyway the consequences of the fall and how it, this will change. Okay. Europe. Well, I think yeah. actually, to be honest, I think we've mainly covered this because mm. I would argue that there is a very substantial economic yeah. decline, uh, and yeah, certainly, course. and as I've also said, there's a massive change in society towards a militarized aristocracy uh, mm. and also i mean really very very basic um the west roman empire becomes mm. a series of uh different independent uh polities um and you know you get the the, the breakup of the empire which is a huge change uh, and those places of course develop in different ways they develop different identities so that you know you have uh castilians uh provencal french you know i mean you know all sorts of different th things happen as a, as a result i mean that's not to say that within the roman if the roman empire had continued everybody would have been absolutely the same far from it but on the other hand by the late empire Amongst the aristocracies, there's a strong sense of Romanness, and one of the things that does not bring down the empire is nationalism, local nationalism. Oh. I mean, there really is almost no evidence of people wanting to be, of sorry, of aristocrats wanting to be free of the empire. There's evidence of slaves and suppressed people wanting to be free, but that's social rather than national. Um, so no, I mean the, the 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 end of the Roman Empire is is a massive change in terms of you know the complete structure of politics and of society is transformed. I mean, and we discussed this earlier as well when we spoke about Britain, but I want to ask you as well that with the term "dark ages," of course, it, as I said, it has been disputed by modern scholars yeah. as a term in today. But what do you think about the term "dark ages" used after Roman Empire? Well, um well it, it depends for some places like britain i mean you could mean use it just to say we don't really know 
Uh, and in the case of Britain, uh, as I say, there's no textual evidence for a couple of centuries. Mm. So, I mean, in that respect, you could say dark. Mm. Um, of course, Bede is basically our other source. Yeah, I know, but Bede is Bede's writing, Bede's writing in the 730s. Mm. That's actually 300 years later. But still, um, he's kind of our only source on that era because he, in his history of the English people, he kind of it supposedly covers from Caesar's invasion until his time, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But um, sorry, the, on the subject of dark, uh, I mean, one of the problems, it has connotations of moral darkness. I think those are definitely wrong. Um Oh, I don't know. And I mean, you're right. It's completely. It's gone out of fashion. Um, uh, um, Is it because you know people think that civilization was lost until basically the Renaissance era, and is that kind of part of it that the civilization is supposedly lost? I I, 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 I argue, and I argue in my book that there's a dramatic economic decline, and that actually that economic decline, I don't think. Western Europe reaches the levels of economic sophistication uh, that you have in the Roman Empire until maybe the 10th, 11th century. I mean, I, I mean, I think there is a massive economic change, which I think it's hard not to see as an economic decline. I mean, just look at the archaeological evidence of I mean, you know, the Romans are absolutely everywhere and they're there in, you know, in, in obvious form. If you look for people from the 7th, 8th century, uh, it's that you're struggling. You're finding, you know, post holes uh, and, you know, wooden structures. So, um, I mean, I do think there's a... I'm not sure I would call it the Dark Ages, but on the other hand, actually, in my book, I say the end of civilization. So probably, mm. I'm probably actually at one extreme. I do sort of believe in Dark Ages. I wouldn't use the term because it's so unfashionable, but I do think something really quite dramatic happens at the end of the Roman Empire, and it leads to a, a huge economic uh, regression. But other and people I, do that. And I, I think we've got to round it up there. I hope you enjoyed this episode about the decline of fall of the Roman Empire. Of course, before you go, you mentioned your book. Where can people buy, buy, buy your book if they want to read more about the decline of fall and the consequences of the Roman Empire? And of course, do you have any social media or places where people can find you if they have any further questions that they want to know about this topic? Okay, well, my book is still in print. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's a paperback. Uh, it's quite short. It's got pictures. It was deliberately written for a broad audience. So it's not, I mean, it, it's a serious book, but it is actually written for a wider audience. And in fact, I won a prize for its literary merit, and it's called uh, The Fall of Rome, and the end of civilization. But if, if you remember my name and you Google my name, you'll probably find it without too much difficulty. I mean, equally, my name is very distinctive. If you really want to get in touch, you won't have any problems finding some link to how to get in touch with me. Uh, and thank you all very much for listening. It's been uh, fun to do. Um, I'm currently working on a totally different project on the origin of the cult of Christian saints. Ooh. 
but it's been nice to go back to something that uh, I wrote a book about. So thank you. Thank, thank you. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. This has been Well That Aged Well. We are available on social media, on Instagram, and Well That Aged Well, Twitter, slash, slash X these days, and Well That Aged Well. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a little review and give us five stars. And also do the same, give us five stars. Or you can leave one if you hated this episode, which I hope you don't, on Spotify as well. Again, please like, share and subscribe. My name is Alan and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.